0: We we live now. I'm
1: recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Umbrella Cast. Mumbrella. Mumbrella.
0: Mumbrella Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's reporter Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Wavemaker CEO Peter Vogel.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: This week we'll be talking about Indie Media Agencies Unite a New Industry Body, Seven, SCA and The Week in Reporting, and the ACCC gets greenlit for an ad tech inquiry. But first, Peter, we're going to start off with some questions for you. So you came first from South Africa. Correct. uh, Where you set up your agency. I'm going to take a run at this, but who knows? Nota Bene?
2: That's exactly correct.
0: Oh, there we go. Um, so Chris Ingham and Associates, or CIA, brought that agency and then CIA was bought by WPP. What are the differences in markets between Australia and South Africa and how have you found that change?
2: Yeah, uh, I in the South African advertising industry including media and research, has always been a fairly developed market. I think it's, you know, based on the fact that it's very closely connected to the UK market. Uh, so there's a lot of knowledge and talent transfer from the two markets. Uh, so from a sophistication point of view, it's quite similar to the Australian market. And I'd also say, you know, a similar amount of media vendors and, and similar structure of the industry. I suppose the the huge difference is twofold. A, the population is over twice uh, that of Australia's, uh, and then the diversity of South Africa. So there is you know over twenty different local dialects, and that can be broken down into maybe three or four major uh, languages uh, and ethnic groups. So certainly from a targeting, a messaging, perspective, uh, it is uh, a lot more complex, yeah. You
1: didn't have a linear track into media agency land, though, for those listening who haven't met, you don't know the story, could you give us a brief rundown of how how you got into media agencies?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I I feel very fortunate. I actually started on the client side uh, in a marketing and advertising role, so that certainly gave me insight in terms of, of the challenges clients face every day. Uh, I then fell in love with the advertising discipline uh, of marketing and moved to Ogilvy, which was one of the leading agencies in South Africa. Uh, and there became very friendly with uh, the head of media and we decided to start a media strategy agency, which I suppose was was the right time to do that. Uh, and then obviously just fell in love with the media side of the business and have remained in it uh, for many years across a number of markets uh, and regions and companies.
1: As Hannah said, you ended up in WPP and I'm sure yep. that you didn't think that that was where you were going to end up when you set up your agency. How was it going from running an independent shop to being part of an international really big holding group?
2: I mean, to be honest, I, I've been very engaged with WPP since the day I started. So I started at Volkswagen uh, in South Africa, and our creative agency was ogilvy so from day one i'd worked with wpp and then I moved to ogilvy um, and then you know I wanted the the opportunity to to go out on my own, but always had very close lines with with wpp so it wasn't it wasn't a big cultural shock uh, to come back into the group. I think uh, the key thing was to embrace the I suppose the benefits and the opportunity that a scaled network could bring to my business and what I wanted to achieve in my career.
1: You mentioned you've been in a few different markets since becoming part of the WPP group. How has that been personally? Like it must be a really big challenge, although an opportunity, but a challenge and an interesting mindset to have to kind of uproot your life moving from South Africa to mm-hmm. here here to Asia Asia back. How's that been?
2: Uh, look, I, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, firstly, I've seen it as as a real sort of privilege to be able to move around the world uh, with with the company group, and I think, I suppose, you know, that is the one benefit uh, of being part of a global network. And you know, there might be downsides, so you need to embrace the the, the positive opportunities. I think coming from a country that was was really diverse in terms of cultures uh, helped me with those transitions because, yes, I mean, moving into, you know, Asia-Pacific, you know, people collectively term it Asia-Pacific, but every single country in Asia-Pacific is, is so different with different cultures, different nuances, uh, different customer behaviours. So I think... Uh, you know, that is part of advertising is understanding uh, the different nuances between, between uh, target markets and, and cultures. So I think, you know, that's, that's really helped me and I've just seen it as an exciting opportunity to, to learn more and to learn more about people.
0: So you've also been part in a merge of two businesses um, when you were leading MEC, which merged with Maxis. How do you go about creating a new culture when you're bringing two businesses together?
2: Um, look, I think, you know, mergers are part of business, mergers and acquisitions. They're, they're part of, of growing successful businesses. So I think one always, first of all, has to look at the positive. Uh, and if there is a robust business uh, strategy or reason for that merger then it's a lot easier uh, and and then it is it's it's trying to ensure that the people in the organizations see the the um, improved or increased opportunity of being a, a, a bigger collective and as we know in our industry I mean diversity of talent uh, be it gender ethnicity language diversity makes us stronger uh, and I think it's to to reinforce that to, to the people. Whilst you know, two agencies may have a different culture, you benefit from from the differences, you know, and you take the the good parts out of both, and you build a new culture.
1: When you think about your time with WPP since you your agency got acquired, and then that agency got acquired to now. What are the parts that you think have stayed the same, and what have been the change, the biggest changes?
2: I think, uh, I mean, even even if you work for a company or you're acquired by a company, you know, it, it's about uh, wanting to work with like-minded people and people that you like and respect. Uh, and so I don't think that necessarily changes. I mean, I think it's also with our clients. You know, if if you if you forge a good partnership with a client, even if they might be in a very different industry or vertical. Uh, it is about working with like-minded people who share certain values uh, and that's, that's always the foundation of a great partnership. So as I say, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough pretty much throughout my career to be connected in some way, shape or form with, with WPB. So I'm very familiar with it. I feel very comfortable in that scenario. And uh, it provides me with opportunities to, to learn every day.
1: What do you what do you think about the changes both for Group M and WPP? What do you think those have been? What does the WPP of 2020 how does that differ from the one of old?
2: Um I think it is very different, you know, whenever leadership from from a founder moves to to someone that is managing the business there is an automatic change in culture I mean initially a company is you know really takes on the culture of that founder uh, and I think I think it's important it's important for for businesses to transition and particularly when when someone new comes over to manage an operation and I think uh, the benefit of someone new coming in is they look at the, the company with fresh eyes uh, and without a, a sort of a biased view. And I think that's good for an organization. And and, and I think we've seen that with WPP. Uh, Mark Reed is certainly uh, a lot more open-minded uh, and a lot more collaborative. And he really wants to to accentuate that and turn it into a a modern media, uh, advertising and communications company. And as we know in our industry these days, yes, it's very competitive, but it requires a lot of collaboration because there's a lot of specialist companies, operations, be they on the agency side, be they on the ad tech side, the martech side. And, and we have to, to be successful, we have to be able to, to collaborate a lot better. And I think certainly that's, that's uh, the philosophy of Mark Reed, a very much more open, transparent and collaborative uh, um, approach.
1: Speaking of approaches and new leaders, Jens yep. Monsis obviously started towards the latter end of last year. Now, I know that we've got the WPP investor strategy announcement on Monday, and you can't speak to that, but what has life at WPP under Jens looked like so far, and do you see, do you see what the culture of WPP looks like with him at the helm?
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, So again, I mean, similar to my comments about Mark Reed, uh, we've got someone who's come into the business uh, who's a real change agent. He comes from... A very interesting background, uh, a more technology futuristic approach to the world. Having worked at both Google and then at BMW, but at BMW looking at at their future innovations. Uh, so again, I think it's it's fantastic when you when you've got a big complex group that uh, really needs to lean into clients' uh, new requirements. Uh, to grow in the future it's it's good having a person like that that has a fresh approach, uh, but is also uh, extremely future focused. Uh, and I think again, that has generated a lot of energy within the group. Uh, we know that you know we have to keep changing, transforming, growing to be successful. in in any business, let alone the communications one, which is, you know, accelerating very quickly. So I think there is, there is that energy in the organisation and he certainly brings that that drive and that uh, more future-focused approach to our business.
0: So talking about that future focus, what are you most excited for in WPP in 2020?
2: I think, you know... uh, wpp is is a large organization with a lot of uh, really good resources. I think you know the the power comes from stitching a lot of those capabilities uh, and expertise together in a more seamless way to deliver a holistic solution to clients and I think certainly that is a big part of his of his strategy is to ensure uh, that we can operate as, as a seamless organization focused on the client's uh, requirements first. And, and that's what we all need to, I suppose, pivot our, our focus is, is on the client and their requirements to help them grow uh, as opposed to our own businesses and and how we operate. I mean, we we are enabling our clients' growth or assisting with that. So uh, we need to remain focused on that in terms of how we work and the decisions we make.
0: And what about specifically for WaveMaker? What is your focus this year?
2: Uh, so uh, we've got a, a new global CEO uh, in Toby Jenner. He started four, about four months ago. Uh, and he is, he is also, uh, is a very driven, uh, and, uh, a change agent, um, focused very much on, on clients and their requirements, but also internal culture and, and ambition and drive. So I think again, for WaveMaker, it's a very exciting time. In fact, next week, I'm in Mumbai for a, a new global conference where certainly we will be, uh, launching our renewed ambition, uh, uh, the way that we help provocate for growth with our clients, and, and certainly um, more market-leading and technology-fueled uh, tools and processes uh, to ensure that we can do that successfully with our clients.
1: One exciting piece of news mm-hmm. already for the agency this year is the Mondelēz account, and you also picked up some great pieces of business last year. Yes. What does it do to your team to be working on clients like that to get those kinds of wins under the belt
2: yeah I mean as, as we all know in life you know if you're not growing you you essentially dying or, or declining uh, so growth is growth is essential uh, for a business you know it enables you to bring in new talents it it, it enables you to uh, do great work Uh so, I mean, absolutely, those types of wins are, are fantastic. And also, the quality of those organizations is also really exciting for us. You know, organizations which, which have a, a strong growth agenda that respect their agencies uh, and want to work with them as partners to help facilitate growth for their, their own businesses. So, so, absolutely, I mean, Mondelez was very exciting uh, win. And again, we've we've we formed a real collaborative approach there uh, with uh, a lot of resource within Group M, bringing that together uh, to ensure that we can we can deliver a market leading uh, FMCG service to to Mondelez. Uh And then uh, we're also working with other new bits bits of business like uh, Airbnb, which again is very exciting. I mean, for me you know if you look at the growth globally in in advertising and media a lot of companies are flatlining but but we're actually growing as an industry globally and that's obviously fueled by by the digitally enabled or the digital or direct-to-consumer businesses, you know, be it at Amazons of the world, et cetera. Um, so again, you know, it's lovely to be able to work with, with a client like Airbnb, which is really operating in that, in that field.
0: In terms of winning new businesses, the pitch process has been a big conversation in the industry for the last 12 months. What are your thoughts on where the industry needs to get to when it comes to pitching?
2: Uh, yeah, that's that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think I mean it is incumbent on on agencies to better understand uh, what clients are are looking for before going into into the pitch, and I think it's on incumbent on ourselves to to understand you know what is driving the decision. What are their needs? And, and then to be honest enough uh, with ourselves to say, yes, you know, we're in a good position to provide that service or, or that's the type of partnership that, that, you know, will be successful. I think, you know, when, when, you, when you're just going after any business uh, or, you, you know, being driven to, to the lowest price... That doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't. It doesn't benefit the agency, certainly not. Uh, and in the in the the longer term, it doesn't benefit the client. And I think it is time for agencies uh, to be more mindful of that. Uh, but I think I think the onus is on them to before they, you know. Uh, uh expend a lot of energy a lot of cost a lot of resource into that to try get alignments up front before the process starts and yes I mean lots of pictures are driven by procurement but that's fine I mean you know understand I mean we have very you know challenging conversations with some of our partners to ensure that we're getting you know the best price product for for our clients so you know it's understandable but just to understand the parameters and the reasons for, you know, some of their requirements or decisions. If we don't, uh, you know, then we'll very quickly drive our business into a uh, quantity-based industry.
1: Last year, Matt Baxter, the global CEO of Initiative, the ditch the pitch was a big conversation. And if not ditching the pitch, then chatting about how agencies are affected by it, how clients are affected by it. 2020 what do you want the industry to be talking about what conversations do you think should be on the agenda this year
2: i mean you know i I suppose uh expanding a lot of the conversation like transparency openness honesty that kind of stuff into into the pitch process Uh, as i say i mean we're all in business and and to be transparent up front you know about about what is needed you know if 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 a client needs a, a cheaper foster service that's fine you know uh, uh mention that there, there are potentially ways to deliver that through you know different service models uh through in-housing some services through you know looking at at certain efficiencies in in the process but I think, you know, if you're able to, to have that conversation and agree on, on the expectations, I mean, I think that's it. And, and you know, we, 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 I think, you know, hold certain discussions around transparency and openness and honesty and provocation uh, to any small parts of our business. But it should be, you know, it should be broadened across uh, the entire way that we engage and operate with clients.
1: What about beyond pitching? What are the things that you care about and that you think the industry either cares about or should care about and should be talking more about?
2: I mean, I think you know, I think obviously there's there's a lot of initiatives. There's GDPR in in Europe, there's the A C Inquiry in, you know, in Australia. There's there's a lot of focus on uh, I suppose privacy Exploitation, uh, I suppose, monopolies uh, and that kind of stuff, and and I think uh, you know, really, I mean, our industry is fantastic. Advertising and media, it's not a, it's not an evil industry. It's a great industry. It's it's you know, we we. We're telling consumers about new products, new brands that will hopefully enhance their lives, their status, their, their well-being. That kind of—it's a good industry, and I don't think advertising and media is ever going to disappear. It's always going to be a way of informing customers about new products and services. Uh, so I think it's incumbent on us, as an industry, as agencies, to to look at the new era of marketing and and ensure. That it is better. Uh, it is better for people. People are getting the right information at the right time, as opposed to, you know, us invading or interrupting or bombarding with, with them uh, with with our messages. So I think, yeah, as an industry, we need to focus on how do we make this essential, you know, part of a of a, a consumer's lives better for them, a better experience. Uh, a less invasive, intrusive one. So, yeah.
0: First up this week, indie media agencies from around the country have united to form the Independent Media Agencies of Australia, a new industry body which has launched with 20 founding members. Those members include Highland, The Media Store, Sandbox Media, PMN Media, and Chimera. The IMAA seeks to champion the fact that independent media agencies drive $2.5 billion worth of ad spend every year and will promote the benefits of working with Australian-owned indie media agencies. Peter, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, especially considering you were once part of an independent media agency. But, Britt, before we do... What struck me at the launch was how much of a conversation there was around why didn't this happen sooner. Does it surprise you at all that it's taken this long for a body like this to exist? I'm not
1: sure surprised is the right word. I mean, obviously, we've got the MFA Media Federation of Australia, which represents the whole media agency industry. But of course, in my chats with independents, there has been questions of whether or not independents are adequately represented by the MFA. There's certainly representation there. I know Virginia Highland, for example, from Highland is part of it. Um, Brett Dawson from Bohemia. Those are a couple who come to mind. So, I mean, it's not a surprise that it's happened, but also these things take time to set up. I mean, I'm sure it took a while to get 20 founding agencies on board as founding members, um, the one thing that struck me that was a little disappointing is that while the management committee will rotate annually, the first five members of that management committee are all men. I don't know if in 2020 that's something that you couldn't possibly work around, you know, maybe find one or two women. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that it's it's a positive step forward if independents think that, you know, this is a great way for them to champion what they do and why they've set up shop and what they do internally.
0: I think um, through the discussion on the day, the point was that the MFA can't necessarily champion one member above anyone else or one sector above anyone else. So whereas this body will be able to do that. Peter, do you think this is going to result in a better outcome for the independents?
2: Um, Look, I absolutely uh, believe so. I, I wasn't at the at the meeting, so I don't know exactly what was was discussed. But, as you say, having run an independent agency, you know i do I do understand it. I think it's a very positive thing for our industry. I think our, uh, the the one great thing about our industry is that it does promote entrepreneurialism, and you do. you have these Indies starting up. Uh, and that's exciting. That's healthy for the business. Um, it is. It's it's difficult setting up a, an independent agency. You know, I, I sit in in a big group. It's really easy if if I want, you know, an opinion on something or to rely on an experienced person. Or whatever. I, I've got a network within my group because it's large. And when you set up a, a small agency, I mean, you do. You feel like you you are doing it alone. And and that is, I suppose, the purpose of any industry body is is to be able to share experiences, to learn from each other, and to you know ensure that you. Develop a better business. Um, you, you have it with, you know, small business uh, uh, industries, you know, large corporate bodies, etc. So I think why shouldn't we have uh, a, a, an independent agency body? I don't think that it will... In any way uh, detract from from the big industry bodies, and I think uh, that they should, uh, and I'm sure they will, still form a part of the bigger industry bodies. But they've they've got unique they've got unique sort of challenges that they can learn from each other because you know running a smaller business you don't have as much res- resource at your disposal. So to to share knowledge uh, and approaches I think is a great thing and it can only make our industry a lot more healthy.
1: One of the things that I noticed the body will do is provide kind of pitch support and formalised networking and, as you said, Peter, that kind of opportunity for knowledge sharing. It also, which struck me, the the criteria are interesting and I'm not sure exactly how it will play out. So you have to have been established for two years or in the industry for 10 years. So I'm not sure if that means that the founder has to have been in the industry for 10 years. Um, so one comment that we did get this morning was whether or not certain independents will kind of have to wait to meet that criteria or how that criteria will play out. But I think, yeah, getting 20 on the board to start with is is a good start and I'm sure, and the the association is sure that, Now that it's launched, they'll only get more and more members signing up.
0: Next up, Seven, Southern Cross Stereo and The Week in Reporting. So we are deep in the throes of reporting season and this week saw two of the big media companies drop their numbers for the first half of the 2020 financial year. Radio business Southern Cross Osterio, SCA, dropped its numbers, which saw a revenue drop of 8.2% and a 12% increase in debt, largely because they acquired Red Wave Media at the end of 2019 from Seven. These results come after significant cost cuttings across the business. And the overwhelming feeling I kind of got during the presentation was that SCA is doing the best it can in a bad market, really. Peter, a lot of these media companies, and we're going to talk about Seven in a Minute, who also released their results this week, they've been warning for months that these results weren't going to be great. SCA particularly downgraded its forecast in October 2019, and the numbers they've released are in line with that downgrade. Do you think we're actually going to see any surprises this reporting season, or do you think everyone across the board is just expecting fairly low numbers?
2: Uh, no, I mean, I don't think we should see any surprises. I mean, last year was a very very tough market i mean you know the australian economy was not firing there was a decline in in uh media and advertising spends i mean the first time you know since pre-gfc time so so the industry itself uh is is under pressure and it is, it's revenues, it's the amount of revenue coming into, you know, traditional advertising. So uh, I think that's to be expected. I, I think that's the, the nature of our industry and business in Australia. It's obviously gonna require us to be very smart in the way that we operate to to move forward, to you know, ensure that there is growth. I mean on SEA specifically, I think absolutely, I think, you know, within the context of the industry industry uh they had a good year i mean i think you know I, I was involved with their boomtown initiative which i think was was fantastic it was a really great idea it was you know getting people in the industry to recognize that there's a viable market out there and i think that that did really well for their business um, so yeah, I, I, think unfortunately it is just reflective of, of the industry more so, uh, than SEA. You know, I know that again, they've got a, a pipeline of innovation, you know, be it podcasts and various things that maybe, you know, uh, uh, monetizing those will, will the lag will lag slightly, but they've got good plans for, for the future. I mean, I think there is, there's good life in audio. I think it's more a reflection on on the the industry as a whole.
0: Yeah, you hit on a lot of um, SCA's prime points there. So Boomtown, they listed as one of the better things to happen to their business in the last year. Regional markets are really important to SCA. Um, also, podcasting, Podcast One grew by like 124% or something massive, and they're expecting it to be cash flow positive in the next year. So that's great for a business which I think is only two to three years old. Um I think also I spoke with CEO Grant Blackley this morning and he said they have actually seen some advertisers come back or at least he said some speaking about coming back. So they've seen in the banking industry people kind of talking about coming back. They're expecting government to come back soon. So do you think maybe we're about to see a little bit of a turnaround?
2: Um, <laughs> that's, that's a very difficult question to answer. and. uh if it wasn't for the coronavirus potential impacts right now, I would I would be a lot more optimistic that yes, we 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 should see a bit of an uplift. Uh, I think you know Australian business has to it has to to really put effort into into kickstarting the economy and generating growth. Uh, so based on that, I would have expected an, a a slight uplift. Obviously the the you know, unforeseen and no unknown impact is of coronavirus. And I don't have to explain to anyone the potential impact on, on that, you know, through tourism and and the amount of money uh, that certainly uh, the Chinese tourists spend in this market. So if it wasn't for that, I, I would, would say... Uh, Hopefully there would be an increase, but yeah, who knows at this stage based on that.
0: Also this week, Seven released its results for the first half of the financial year, uh, reporting a $67 million loss and a revenue slip of 3.2%. Perhaps more telling was a drop in underlying net profit after tax of 22%, which was kind of a reflection of the entire free-to-air market falling by 7% and a total ad market decline of 8.5%. Beyond the numbers, there are a couple of really interesting things that came out of Seven's results. Um, The network is still very confident that the Mags and Bauer deal will get through the ACCC, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. But on the back of that, James Warburton, the CEO, who came in last year just after some really rough results, he has voiced possible thoughts of selling Seven studio's which is really interesting to me because it's been a real highlight in their business. It created the MKR, My Kitchen Rules format, which the business has sold. And it's been a really, you know, it's not performing very well for them this year, but it has performed really well for them in the past. Seven is also currently reporting that it's leading in television revenue for the first half of the year, holding a 38.8% despite Nine's win last year in TV audiences. When we spoke with CEO James Warburton after that, He said, you know, buyers don't necessarily buy whole TV audiences, which is what the ratings report on each year. They're obviously buying into the demos. They're buying, you know, specific chunks. And therefore he said it's not really surprising to him that maybe the revenue shares didn't match nine's win of 2019. But seven has had a really tough start to the year. As we touched on, My Kitchen Rules is really underperforming the cricket, kind of underperformed across the BBL." We're also possibly facing some issues with the Olympics around the coronavirus. we still seven are sure it's going to go ahead, but not everybody is. Do you think we're going to see a lot worse to come for seven? Because I think these results were almost maybe not as bad as people were expecting.
2: Um, no. I mean, look, it, you know, turning around a company is is not easy and it takes time. And, you know, I think, you know, all companies go through phases. I mean, you know, it's not that long ago where we saw Channel 10 going through a really difficult time. Uh, and, and, you know, they emerging out of that, you know, they've, they found their niche, they've found their mojo. So yes, at, at times through various reasons, and it might be in terms of, you know, some of your, your leading programming formats just go out of trend or out of fashion uh, and you hit on a on a great new uh, uh, genre uh, I mean, th- this is the ebbs and flows, flows of business. And, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think James got a very clear strategy in terms of the turnaround. And to be honest, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of it, uh, revolves around content, uh, that is going to attract audiences. Yes. Uh, not necessarily the size of the audience, but the specific audience that, that marketers want to engage with, um, And, and yeah, I mean, that, that takes time and, and it's difficult to hit on, on great new formats. I think, I think, uh, certainly their lineup for this year is, is sprinkled with some, some interesting new formats. You know, uh, if I had a crystal ball, I could tell you if, you know, if I think that, Going to be successful or not, but but you know certainly, uh, hopefully a number of them uh, you know hit a mark with with the consumers. So I, I think that's the thing. I mean, in in turnarounds they, they take time and and you can't sort of you know judge too early. You know I think Seven Hat is is a very strong network. Um, it's got some very strong properties, and with the right focus going forward, absolutely. And and it also might be um, part of the reason why James is talking about selling seven studios. I mean, because you just don't know where the right format or the right content is going to come from these days. There's so many sources of great uh, uh, formats and and programs. So why rely on on you know one team to produce all the magic where you can perhaps source it from, from multiple uh, places.
1: As Hannah mentioned, James Warburton yesterday was confident the Olympics would go ahead, said that he and seven didn't have a plan B. Do you think he's being overly optimistic? Are you worried? Are clients worried?
2: Uh, Look, I mean, I think we all have to be optimistic. Um, that, you know, I, I think the ramifications of uh, coronavirus being around for a lot longer into the year are, you know, the impact is is across all our businesses, let alone the Olympics and, you know, that being part of your, your schedule for, you know, six to eight weeks. Um, so I think we have to be optimistic. You know, I think... Um, We can only sort of monitor, um, you know, the the sort of growth or spread of the virus. Uh, I'm not up to date with the absolute latest, uh, but certainly, uh, uh, I mean, I I would be hopeful that uh, as, you know, and... uh, an inventive sort of uh, human race, we can sort of get that under control and ensure that uh, that mobility into Asia-Pacific isn't an issue going forward.
0: Britt, one of the really interesting things that James touched on was they've currently got scheduled for this year nine, what he's calling tent pole pieces of content, which is something running in that prime 7.30 p.m. slot between Sunday and Thursday. Of those nine... Initially, he was saying six. Now he has dropped that back to four or five. Are going to make it through? So, kind of a bit of a death match of the content, which I really liked. Um, but particularly, he's also saying they're only going to commit to six episode seasons of these new formats. So this is things like Pooch Perfect, which I think launches next week. Uh, we've got Big Brother coming up. We've got SAS: Who Dares Wins. Farmer Wants a Wife. This is a really interesting strategy and it's a really smart strategy for the way he's thinking because he's launching Pooch Perfect on a Thursday. It's low risk. Thursday nights are traditionally not great viewing nights. Six episodes, really low risk, especially for something like Pooch Perfect, which is a very expensive format for them to produce given Rebel Rebel Wilson's at the helm. Did that kind of – did this surprise you at all? Because I know – Last year when Seven was announcing all this new content, we were like, where are they going to fit it all? How have they got time for all this? Now that he said, yeah, it's not all going to make it through, it's all kind of starting to come to light a little bit. I think you're right. In the back
1: of my head, though, I'm also thinking the formats like Holy Moly and Pooch Perfect, which have cost the big bucks, are they, for example, Pooch Perfect being six episodes, will that be enough time as a new format for people to get on board, for you to really see the potential of it, particularly if it's facing off against a whole bunch of other formats, which maybe they have a better idea of, such as Farmer Wants a Wife, because that's been around before. So are they giving, is six episodes enough for people to get it, to want more, to be on board? That would be my only question mark, I think, whether or not it's too short. But I like the idea that You give it a crack, see how it goes,
0: on to the next one. So if we think about The Masked Singer last year from 10, that was only 10 episodes Mm. and they were very vocal from the beginning that it would be a short run. That did incredible Mm. things for 10 at the end of last year.
1: Again, I think – the mass Singer had already seen such success in the US and in South Korea where it came from. Reba Wilson, for example, for Pooch Perfect will be a huge pull. I think it'll get curiosity viewers to see how funny she is, whether or not it is funny or a bit cringe or both, who knows. So I, I I'm not saying it won't do well. That would just be my question mark is because we haven't seen it and we don't know, will it be enough time to get people on
0: board? And I'm just going to get this theory on the podcast in case it pulls off. (laughs) Hannah's big call. (laughs) Hannah's big call. Um, They have dealt with Netflix on a couple of shows. So Zumbo's Mm. Just Desserts found its second win through Netflix. Yummy Mummies found its second win through Netflix. Those are both seven studios productions. Mm. I almost think that perhaps six episodes of Pooch Perfect or six episodes of Holy Moly is just an expensive advertisement for Netflix saying, hey, look how great this show is. Netflix who has way bigger budgets. Netflix who is definitely looking to acquire more content. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of these shows that maybe don't hit it in that tentpole space like James wants them to might find a second home on netflix heard it here first you heard it here first guys so before we move into talking about the ad tech inquiry uh the a decision to block the merger between telco's tpg and vodafone which was overruled last week by the federal court is now a decision which seven is taking as a green light for its pacific mags bauer merger so obviously last earlier this year last year i'm losing track at this point um, the vote voiced that perhaps it might not support the Pacific Mags-Bauer merger. However, when we spoke to James earlier in the week, he said, look, it also didn't support the merger between TPG and Vodafone, but that's just gone through. Do you think he should take this as a green light? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, it's it's not a green light. I mean the the TPG Vodafone decision might be positive or optimistic or hopeful but i don't think you can go so far as to say right well they've said yes to this one so we're good we've got this in the bag i mean externally both Bauer and Pacific have been extremely confident the whole way through and i've i think both of us have kind of been unsure about that confidence because at the moment it's a no and you're having to work backwards from a no to try and get to a yes so I don't think green light is the right term, but given the conversation that was happening around
0: Vodafone and TPG, it's a good sign for them, I'd say. You can see where he's coming from, though, right? Because that those were two underperforming businesses. PacMags and Bauer, arguably, two underperforming businesses. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see where he's like, well, look, that that worked. Surely yeah. we can do the same.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think, you know, the ACCC has got a – a very sort of uh, interesting remit. I mean, obviously, you know, their first priority has to be, is it in the best interests of uh, the consumer or the everyday Australian? And then secondly, obviously, uh, it wants to ensure strong business and competition, uh, you know, avoid monopolies, but also uh, make decisions that are going to make businesses thrive and grow uh, we, i mean we all know the 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 challenges certainly that the magazine industry has had and i'm 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 sort of yeah a bit noncommittal on this uh, is it you know is it better for the consumer to have at least a stronger magazine company that 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 is at least stays in business and provides consumers with with uh, you know the reading material that they want or you know to see two businesses you know struggle alongside each other i i don't know for me it's more a sort of a time in point in terms of that industry and then also you know what the australian population can can sort of you know uh uh I suppose support, you know, 24 million, you know, how many different magazine titles or publishers can that population support? So, you know, uh, uh, naively, without all the sort of insight, I, I would, I would think that, you know, there isn't. There isn't a big negative to to potentially a merger of that, and maybe it's an opportunity for that industry to regain a bit of strength and confidence, and and hopefully provide the the consumers with something that they want.
0: So April is currently the date that that decision is going to be handed down. So we'll see all the answers then. But also from the ACCC this week, we've finally seen a government response to the digital platform inquiry. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has asked the watchdog to commence an 18-month inquiry, additional to a five-year investigation, which has also been launched, putting pressure on Facebook and Google and other digital platforms to provide more information around the ad tech supply chain. This all comes after the initial 18-month inquiry, which resulted in a 623-page report that was handed down late last year. A statement from Frydenberg said the inquiry would focus on technologies facilitating the supply of online advertising to Australian consumers. Frydenberg also referenced personalization of ads and addressability in his statement. Peter, what do you think about what the decision that's initially been made here?
2: Uh, look, I, I think the inquiry is a good thing. I think certainly as, as a player in the industry, we're very supportive of it. I think the thing I take umbrage with is is the headlines, you know, inquiry into the murky, non-transparent industry. You know, I think that sets it up in, in a negative. I think, you know, uh, our industry, particularly sort of the, the digital industry, data-led industry has become quite complex and and we do need to to look at a what changes we can make that will better benefit the the consumer or the customer a, a, in the end uh, i think you know that's that's always the triple c's first thing what's in in the people's best interest and then again avoiding any monopolistic um um uh, scenarios from a business perspective. So I th- I think that's that's a great thing to to look into that. And as I say, you know, there's a lot of other complexities that come with the whole sort of digital uh ad tech uh industry which we referred to earlier uh such as, you know, privacy, data, uh, you know, cookies, that kind of stuff. So so I think it's it it's great for us to look at that and, and sort of find a, a better way uh, or a more transparent way uh, for the industry to operate for the consumer's best interests. I don't think, you know, but I don't think there's anything malicious happening in the industry. I think actually a better knowledge of what's happening in the industry is better. You know, so we're more open about uh, about sort of privacy Uh we're more open about the, the costs of, of things, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, access to data and technology, I mean, is, is expensive. And if we're wanting to utilize those to, Better serve our brand messages. Uh, then people need to be aware, you know, of of the costs and and agree to them or not agree to them. Uh, so yeah, I, I think certainly as someone in the industry, I think it's it's a good thing, but it should be seen in a positive light. In it's, its sort of helping the industry operate better, as opposed to saying, "Oh, there's something to uncover there."
0: Well, that's it for us. But before we go, I just wanted to mention our Travel Marketing Summit, which is coming up in a few weeks in Sydney on March the 12th. The Australian tourism industry is going through one of the most challenging periods in its history. In light of this, we have updated the program, which now includes a crisis recovery stream dedicated to the important conversations the industry needs right now. We feel it's more important than ever that the travel community unites to learn from and support one another. So go to mumbrella.com.au slash travel for more information and to secure your tickets. Well, that's all from us for the week. Thanks for joining me, Brittany. Thanks. And thank you, Peter.
2: Thanks, Anna.